It was so cool to watch people get so excited about what their community had offered them that helped them grow and helped them want to give something else to the community as well. So I wrote the book. (laughs) I got a book contract and I wrote that book. And there's a very strong political aspect to it because my big motto coming out of this was that the opposite of division, you know, we keep on being told how divided we are, the opposite of division is not unity, it's collaboration. This is Professional Confessionals. Dar Williams joins us to discuss what led her to authorship and how she developed her songwriting retreat, Writing a Song That Matters. Be sure to listen to Dar's other professional confessional about her primary career as a singer-songwriter. So you have three books that you've written, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, Amelie, and Lights, Camera, Amelie. Let's talk about that last one first and how you came up with the idea of even writing it. Writing... What I found in A Thousand Towns was a huge relief to me because there's only so many hours and minutes of the day that you can put into songwriting. I'm, it's, it's really helpful to live in a real world. <laughs> and I have friends like who are huge history buffs, you know, who would combine their music with being real foodies or going to Revolutionary War sites. <laughs> like they found a way to combine music with something else. It's much better for your ego and for, in my case, and I think others, for your creative self to draw from your life creatively, but not to live in that kind of creative space all the time just with writing songs. So my thing was that I just liked walking around towns and figuring out how they were putting putting themselves together and also seeing what they would do from year to year, how they would change. I started seeing that really early on. And and I was excited for them because again, because I was a musician and I was very green and I was playing at open mics and, you know, tip jar gigs. And, and the first year was kind of like that too. I was really deep into the downtowns watching these, these places, just getting it together enough to put together a small concert series in the basement of their Unitarian church with bad coffee and all that stuff. And, um, and people who were acting very like little engine that could about the whole thing. And this was the mid nineties when Walmart was taking, you know, all the chain stores were sort of taking over and overwhelming the downtowns sometimes by design. And I thought these towns aren't going to come back. You know, these towns aren't going to exist, let alone flourish. I started to sort of study in my mind how these towns would click how the next year after being in the Unitarian basement, somehow I got to be upstairs. (laughs) They had a better sound system. And there was a little local art gallery that opened up next door in a little coffee house. And then, you know, one place they put me up in the super spooky hotel across the street that was a historic hotel. And now, like, I could never afford to stay there. Like, that was the beginning of just putting all this life into the downtown renovating the theater that I was playing at, then renovating the upstairs so that they could have smaller events and all that stuff. Like that stuff really flowed in my boat to watch the way these towns would find their centers. And then I think also find the conversation about democracy and working together that wasn't kind of froofy and overly idealistic. Like it would be people really getting excited about zoning boards and stuff. Because if you got on the zoning board, then you could figure out how to do that cool landscaping project that you want to do because you love your town. You know, Mm -hmm. I loved that stuff. And I was like, 
this is just this weird thing. You know, I don't know what this is, but this is what I love when I travel. And yes, I can write my songs. Yes, I can sing my songs and record them, but I have this other passion. And then this friend said, you know, there was this Harvard study that said that that people congregate, people form relationships, you know, get based on guess what? And I was like, well, there are ideals. And he's like, nope, proximity, just proximity. It's like you form relationships with who's ever around. And, you know, you gravitate to the ones around who are more like you. And yet, you kind of find this thing where you have these acquaintances and you find yourself at dinners and fundraisers and and uh, co-parenting. And suddenly, anyway, what he said made a lot of sense, but I thought, actually, there's some people who really fight that narrative, and those are towns that really are very splintered. Other towns have figured that out, and they're the ones that get the cool public gardens. I mean, the things that you're like, how did they figure that out? You know, uh, performance spaces, progressive libraries, cool restaurants that, you know, compost, have like community composting and stuff like that. Like those towns that have that what I call positive proximity, who experience proximity as an understandably sometimes claustrophobic, but usually very positive thing, go forward into this great 21st century thing where you can go inside and access the entire world on your computer, but then you go outside and can connect with your neighbors and get involved with projects that are exciting to you and also make you proud as a citizen and as a person. So I thought this positive proximity thing is so real. I, I got to talk to somebody and make them write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just started to write about it and, and talked about it in an interview and was asked to give a lecture about it based somebody read the article. Mm -hmm. And I saw people really wanting to talk about their towns and what they were so proud of in their towns. Like people who were doing open mics, you know, lawyers who were like, there's this open mic and I hadn't played since I was in high school. And there I wrote a song for my daughter and, you know, she's getting married. I'm going to like, it was so cool to watch people get so excited about what their community had offered them Mm -hmm. that helped them grow and helped them want to give something else to the community as well. So I wrote the book. (laughs) I got a book contract and I wrote that book and got to meet a lot of urban planners and mayors and, you know, council people and, and just kind of got deep into this vein of how people can get so excited about how they grow in their communities. And there's a very strong political aspect to it because my big motto coming out of this was that the opposite of division you know, we keep on being told how divided we are. The opposite of division is not unity, it's collaboration. And actually, when you look at it from the point of view of collaboration, as a country, we're actually growing our toolkit and doing better than ever before. And so actually, I think we're on an upswing in terms of positive proximity in American communities. Because we're finding more ways to collaborate and kind of knocking down the barriers that would separate us. Yes. And what's cool about that is that we don't look at each other and say, you know, there's this whole thing where it's where people say, you know, we thought we were so divided, but then we met each other and we realized that we had more in common. You know, that's constantly what people say. And I thought, why does that make me feel a little nauseated? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I know, because that original narrative of division and oh we were so different from each other is problematic and seeded into our culture and so if you just grow up knowing 
that you can have a tots park if everybody works together and uh, sweeps out and creates a space for a tots park and you can go to movies at the riverside if if you know if somebody volunteers to make the popcorn and and get leases for the movies and stuff like when people just grow up that way and grow into their communities that way they don't even think at the outset oh we're so divided they're like oh they're people who are really hard to get along with and but you know they're very good at making posters so just have them make the posters and turn the other way when you see them walking down the street like that's not so hard (laughs) (laughs) that's not divided that's just you know living in a community so I, I think positive proximity is like the recognition that you can you can work with and around uh your your fellow citizens and then have this sort of extraordinary life where you're pulling on the history and the food and whatever makes your region special to really have a better life. And, you know, it's funny when I I was listening to uh, an urban planner talking and they he said, well, you know, when I was growing up, my favorite book was Stone Soup, which was, you know, this person comes around and says, I'm going to make us, you know, does anybody have any food? We're all struggling. People say, we have nothing. We have nothing. And he said, well, I'm going to make soup with this stone. And a person says, well, I mean, I've got an onion. I mean, that's going to be horrible. I, I got an onion. I've got some carrots. I've got some collards. And suddenly it's this great soup and everybody's able to share the soup. And I thought, I bet you anything, like 75% of mayors and really good mayors and great urban planners love that folk story, you know, Mm -hmm. that centuries old folk story. So yeah, I mean, positive proximity is the faith that one thing leads to another and just figuring out where you step into that progression. And how you can help it along. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing is, you want to help it along. So, you know, that lawyer who goes to an open mic, and he hasn't played since high school, and he writes a song for his daughter, and his daughter cries, and he feels like he's a creative being suddenly he's volunteering at the open mic or because of the job he had, maybe he contributes financially to certain things in town as opposed to great national organizations, you know, mm-hmm. where he felt very um, separated from, apart from his ideals. It's really to watch people put money and resources and heart and talents into their communities. Yes, once that ball is rolling and you see what your community has done for you, I think it's almost automatic that you try to figure out what you can do for that world that you're a part of. Yeah, it may be hokey to say, but it, it opens your heart. It opens your heart. It opens your, that's actually, that's not hokey because it's, there's a, another piece to it. It opens your heart in the direction of your community because you can open your heart in the direction of your political party and grow what's called your your bonding social capital, which so your bonds are very strong with the people who are like you. And that's lovely. But it can also mean that you can be a real bigot or xenophobic or, you know, paranoid. Bridging social capital is is the thing where you open your heart into your community and you get interested in the bridges that you can build to overcome, you know, obstacles to make things happen. Give us a little bit about what led you to read to uh, to write. Is are they young adult books, Amelie and Lights Camera, Amelie? They're, they're two. They're young adult novels, mm-hmm. and I was invited by Scholastic. You know, they've got a lot of imprints, and it ended up being on on Scholastic. But they're like, you know, we don't know where this is going to go. But this lovely guy named David Levithan, who wrote co-wrote Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, among other things, and wrote actually a beautiful young adult novel called Boy Meets Boy that 
you know, creates this fantastical world where you can be gay in high school and people can know and you can go to the prom as a gay person and you can play on the football team as a gay person. Lo and behold, <laughs> look at where the world is now. But anyway, David was kind of a wonderful dreamer, writer, connector, bridger, I call it. And he wrote, along with his peers, a lovely woman named Randy, who they, they wrote me and they said, we are the Harry Potter people We've done really well here at Scholastic, and we're inviting people from different genres to to write books for children. You know, people who look like they like children to begin with. <laughs> so, so they invited me to write a book, and then they invited me to write a sequel to it. And I decided what I wanted to write about was a a kid who's who sees her parents, her father's friends, as completely you know, weird and, and <laughs> embarrassing and all that. And, but when her father gets sick, they come forward with their very special different skills. I mean, very much like what I found in a thousand towns, like one of them is a great organizer. One of them is a great cook. One of them is a painter. And they all do have like kind of strangely antisocial personalities, potentially, you know, they all have their tics mm-hmm. and yet their sort of glory comes out as they come forward in friendship and this kid gets to see that and I just wanted to write something that reflected the fact that I think that the the bonds between kids and the adult world beyond their parents has really expanded like my son and I were arguing over which song on Abbey Road we liked the best and I probably could have had that argument with my dad too but my dad and his dad Right. <laughs> that was a different <laughs> conversation. So Perry Como and Jimi Hendrix was the divide back in the day. Now it's like, which Jimi Hendrix album do you like the best? And I think that the relationships that kids and, and adults can have where adults can model their flaws and their coolness, but they're like really specific, weird coolness to kids is much stronger. And I think, you know, kids getting to have access to people who live their lives in really different ways is a really healthy part of like what the hippies brought to us. Mm -hmm. Like the hippies model a lot of childlike, cool, (laughs) self-exposing behavior. You know, like they're honest about themselves. Right. So so I said to your neighbor, Mm -hmm. I, we were talking about the sixties. He goes, you know, the sixties gave us this thing called (laughs) self-reflection where you can apologize for things and you can reflect on your behavior and you can apologize. And you know, if it's make or break, like I'm, I'm a broken person or I'm a perfect person, then I would certainly choose to be a perfect person for my kids. That would probably make them feel safe. But if you can be flawed <laughs> and apologize and say, wow, I really overreacted. I'm sorry about that. Then maybe you can meet them halfway and still model, you know, still get away with the whole, you know, I said it because I'm your parent. and <laughs> There we are. <laughs> you do so many different things. One thing that we haven't talked about is you are a speaker. You will get booked as a speaker to talk about all, you know, varying topics. And how how did you fall into that? I mean, I have a list here. Women in music, life on the road, balancing career and family, green touring, touring as an indie artist, and music and social justice. Mm-hmm. Where, where did that all start how how did how did that come to be 
All the stuff that you mentioned is basically stuff that I was invited to do, like panel discussions for mm-hmm. women's days and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in folk music, you do get asked to speak like you it's it's you're not just expected to open your mouth and sing. So those were things I was invited to do. The stuff that was more exciting, I like, you know, I'm I'm happy to write uh, to, to write and talk about being a woman in music and a touring parent or or those things, uh, green touring and things. But it it actually got more complicated along the way and I was really happy for those invitations. Like I was asked because I was doing a lot of environmental fundraisers, Huffington Post said, you know, if you want to write a green blog, we'll make space for you. Like we'll print you. So instead of, they thought I was going to write about like, you know, travel utensils and stuff like that and, you know, offsetting your flight miles. But I got really interested in, like I wrote about hemp and its possibilities. And I interviewed Dana Rohrbacher, who is a super right-wing congressman for, for, for it. And he's like, whatever people want to do in their goddamn backyards is, you know. <laughs> um, but that sort of gave me confidence to be in that role. I called the National Renewable Energy Lab like five times and made friends with them and, and learned all about really exciting stuff that is going on. And they told me that we could be 98% renewable right now if we wanted to. So I got very soapboxy <laughs> about mm-hmm. that. And so people could, you know, fold my discussion of that into like a festival that I was playing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I called Wesleyan University, asked me if I would teach something for a a very specific department that basically the thing would just have to do with democracy, you know, something having to do with public life and democracy. Mm -hmm. So I taught a course called Music Movements in a Capitalist Democracy taught that for three years and then taught songwriting with my retreat so that and then I wrote this book about urban planning from (laughs) from a dar (laughs) perspective and that kind of opened up a lot of cross-pollinated things like I'm gonna probably teach a songwriting course where we're going to talk about we're gonna write songs together and then we're gonna back up for an hour or so a week and talk about songs that have had very specific kinds of impacts or movements of songs you know, or how music has affected things. So the mixing and matching is what I'm excited about. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.